Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 309. It's a different concept. Uh, the people in Small Giants have a different conception of greatness, which resonates with me and with a lot of other people. They believe that greatness has to do with basically the impact that they have on all the people around them, whether it's their employees of the company or the customers or the suppliers or the community in which they live, that uh, a business has this ability, this sort of a higher purpose of uh, really making people's lives better. Are you ready for it? it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Are you opening a restaurant and stressing out with where to start? Or perhaps you've already opened your restaurant and you're finding yourself completely overwhelmed with the day-to-day task that only you know how to do. If you feel this way, I've got good news. You don't have to do it alone, nor should you regain control of your business and your life with restaurantowner.com. And if you go to restaurantowner.com slash unstoppable, you will get a 10-day pass for only $1. Get on it. Hiring a consultant to train your staff and to improve your restaurant can be expensive. Wouldn't it be awesome if you could just get advice from world champion baristas and leading restaurant consultants without spending thousands of dollars? Tipsy believes you should have the chance to learn new skills whenever you need to, which is why they have hundreds of hospitality courses available for only $9 a month. To give you a little something extra, as a restaurant unstoppable listener, you can also get 50% off your first month. All you gotta do is Click the tipsy banner in the show notes. Get on it. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Bo Burlingham. Bo, you got to tell me, man, are you feeling unstoppable today? Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) As soon as 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 I uh, connected with you, I I could just feel my unstoppability. going like crazy <laughs> awesome i'm glad to hear it so bo burlingham is an editor at large of ink magazine and the author of five books the most recent being finish big how great entrepreneurs exit their companies on top today we'll be discussing two of his previous books which are uh, small giants companies that choose to be great instead of big which was one of five finalists for the 2006 Financial Times slash Goldman Sachs Business Book of the Year Award and The Great Game of Business, which introduced uh, something we talk a lot about on the show, open book management, and has uh, had over 30,000 copies sold and has been named the 100 best business book of all time on that list. So, man, uh, your books are awesome. I've really enjoyed reading them. I can't wait to dive into some of these lessons that you share in your books, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or a mantra. Take it away. A success quote or a mantra. Um, okay. I would say, um, I don't know. I'm not very good at, at mantras. Uh, I, actually, I have a mantra because I'm 
I'm a I'm a meditator, but I'm not supposed to tell you what it is. Um, You're going to break the, the rule? No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I I would say that the thing that you need to ask yourself uh, constantly is where am I going and why? Uh, it, the most important factor in business I've found over the entire time that I've been writing about entrepreneurs, the ones who do the best are the ones who have a very clear understanding of who they are, what they want, and why. I love it, man. And it's so clear in your books, uh, the emphasis on having that plan, knowing where you're taking you know, your team, and knowing why you're doing it, having that drive, having that purpose, having those higher, you know, you know, just those higher governing laws that just affect why we do everything we do. It comes out in your books and it has been a huge lesson here at Restaurant Unstoppable. So great way to get this interview started. And let's kind of paint a picture a little bit deeper about, you know, who you are uh, and how you got to where you are today. So let's kind of, I guess, start with, uh, you know, what's your current role? What are you up to these days and what's your role in society society currently? Well, I, I should emphasize that I actually... Um I guess it was about a year ago, I, uh, I left Inc. And I became a contributing writer at Forbes magazine. Oh, okay. Uh, because Forbes had, had fallen in love with small giants and wanted to create a list every year of uh, 25 new small giants. And uh, so we published our first list uh, last year, we uh, in February, and we've got a new one coming up in May of this year, and we're gonna, this is going to be an annual thing. We're going to do it. Oh um, man, Jeff, I, yeah. I'm so happy you put that on my radar. I'm going to be rifling through those lists to find future guests on the show. Uh, but thank you for filling us in there. Um, so that's good to know. Um, so okay, I guess let's kind of rewind back to 1990 when you were the executive editor. Uh, you decided to resign from that title to focus on writing. Looks like you paired up with Jack Stack, uh, and one of your first books was The Great Game of Business. So what was your mission behind that book? And kind of take us to that point in time. Well, we had run an article in Inc., uh, which was one of the, when I was, during the time that I was executive editor at Inc., it was one of the favorite articles that I had run uh, that was about uh, Jack and his colleagues at uh, Springfield Remanufacturing Corp. And uh, it was called The Turnaround, and it was really about their system, the great game of business. Um, and it got a tremendous response from the readers of uh, Inc. And uh, and he got a tremendous response as well. And uh, people began showing up there wanting to actually see for themselves with their own eyes, how did this work? This whole business of sharing financials with your employees and uh, actually teaching them how to use it to make the company more successful. Um, and it hit a responsive chord with people, and a lot of people wanted to know more about it. So um, I, uh, I, I met him actually for the first in person. For the, I was the editor of that article, and it was a complicated situation where I had to really combine two other articles. Um, and. Uh, uh, I met him for the first time at an Inc. 500 conference, 
that he came to. And while I was, while he was there, I invited him to lunch and with some of the other editors and other guests at, uh, uh, of Inc. And, uh, uh, we were having lunch and, uh, uh, sitting between me and Jack was a publisher um, called uh, Harriet Rubin, uh, who was, was a great publisher of business books in the uh, in the 1980s. And uh, I uh, I happened to mention that I thought the 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 article we'd done on Jack and Springfield Remanufacturing and the Great Game of Business was really my favorite article that during the entire time I'd been at Inc. And uh, she turned to me and said, well, then why don't you write the book? (laughs) And, uh, and, and I said, well, actually at that point, you know, I had a full-time job. I was executive editor of the magazine and uh, which was basically one of the three people who ran the magazine. And uh, I said, well, gee, uh, I have to think about that. <laughs> and uh, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it was something I would really love to do for a variety of reasons. And, and, sorry, go ahead. No, that, that's it. And, uh, and so that's how um, I, I did do an interview with Jack sort of as a warm-up to the book, uh, which was a cover story in Inc. It was called Why I Hate Being the Boss, which is uh, – the, a theme of uh, that Jack had, and uh, uh, we, I, I, I interviewed him, and that got a tremendous response as well. And then one thing led to another, and meanwhile, he had all these people showing up who wanted to know how how do you actually go about doing this, and so that's where the great game of business came from. Namely, let's put together something that actually explains to people um, how this works. So what was it that drew you to it? You said you just love the idea of this article. You were drawn to it so much so that you left your job to focus on writing the book. Why were you drawn to it? What, why did it resonate with you so much? Uh, in a, in a, on a couple of different levels. One is um, that, you know, the, it, you have to go back a ways, but at that point in business history, uh, there'd always been a tension between the human side and the financial side, okay. where, where the financial people were always sort of limiting what the human resource people could do, and the people on the human side were always uh, being frustrated by the financial restraints. Okay. And what I, what I saw was that Jack and his colleagues had figured out a way to totally eliminate this this conflict by basically saying, okay, we're going to include everybody in this. That was a truly revolutionary idea at that time. I think most people who heard about what he was doing uh, thought he was totally out of his mind. Um, and uh, but But it was obviously working for Springfield Remanufacturing. And so... We decided to write the book um, to, you know, let people who were curious about this know exactly how it worked at um, at SRC. And uh, in fact, uh, that book led to 
the creation of a business at SRC called The Great Game of Business. And that business began putting on an annual conference called The Gathering of the Games, um, which was really the only national conference of open book practitioners. And it started out small, but it's got, it's grown and grown and grown. And it's been going on now for every year for something like 22 wow. or 23 years. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. And, and there are actually literally thousands of companies that have um, taken uh, what, you know, the, the, the system that uh, Jack and his colleagues created at SRC and adapted it to their own businesses. Uh, obviously, they've changed it because every business is unique and every business has its own culture. Uh, and, and they need to sort of make it um, something that the people in the business can really uh, embrace as their own. So, so the, the, there are little changes that people make, but the fundamental idea that the way you understand what's going on in a business is by understanding what the numbers tell you. Mm. And, and either you um, are able to read the numbers and understand the numbers, um, or it's very hard to really know what's going on inside a business. Awesome. And you did a great job giving us the, you know, play by play and how this book came into existence, uh, which is a really cool journey you took us through. But I want to know, I want to go deeper, Bo. I want to know why. Uh, why was, why did this matter to you? Why do you think the world needed this book? What was, what was the world missing? I mean, aside from this clash between human and the human resources and financial side of business, but why did it matter to you that you brought this to light? Well, I guess there was there was something that really appealed to me about the fact that this was a company that had figured out a way to um, actually get everybody in the business on the same path. I mean, there were all these kind of books being written back then and theories being propounded about, well, how do you... How do you get everybody working together and in alignment? And, and through this simple insight, really, that, well, you can do that by making sure that everybody understands the financial and is working together to make the company more successful, that that is going to, um, you know, that, that is going to, that'll solve everything. And, uh, uh, it, it was also, in a very interesting way, um, it, it, it was significant in terms of it, how it addressed some really, really big issues in our society, such as um, the gap between the haves and the have-nots. I mean, we hear a lot today, and, and there are a lot of people out there talking about it as uh, the income gap. But it's not really the income gap. The real question is the wealth gap. Um, you know, and Jack's Stack's theory was that, well, the way that you address the income gap or the wealth gap in our society is that you teach the people who the, the have nots what the haves know and how they yes. um, have have actually uh, learned how to create wealth. Why is that so important though? Who, who cares? Why is that so important? Right? 
Well, <laughs> I'm being I, sarcastic. I, I, that's okay. <laughs> I, I just think you have a better society mm. if you have every everybody on the same page and and at least uh, understanding what it takes. Um, because it's very ironic, you know. Here we have this sort of capitalistic capitalist, the ultimate sort of capitalist country, and uh, uh, there's an incredible amount of ignorance about business. Mm. Um, throughout the population, and yet, and and in fact, uh, you know, that that gives rise to people um, being in favor of policies that would ha- be extremely detrimental to um, to 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 the citizens of the society. And um, if you can raise, if you can get rid of that ignorance and have people understanding what it is, what it really takes uh, to create wealth and to, and to improve people's standard of living, um, you know, all kinds of problems go away. Mm. Man, I, I, I love it. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that, what you just shared with us, that whole idea of just sharing the knowledge and leveling. I feel like when you share the knowledge, to put it simply, you level the playing field and knowledge is power. When, when people have the knowledge, they can be more competitive and you can, you know, you can, you know, like I said, level that playing field, bring back the middle class. And I think that's kind of like the, the long-term effect of what, what happens when you take this approach of sharing knowledge and creating, creating other owners. And I mean, that's been like the biggest aha moment for me in this podcast is the people like the people you profile in your book, small giants, uh, Danny Myers, he's one of the people that does this. Ari Weinzak, wag, we'll get to this. They, 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 provide opportunity they they, they're not all about how rich i can get but they're how about how much of an impact can i make on the lives of other people everybody i touch and how can i just you know make it possible for the next generation i i don't want to get too deep into that because i feel like we'll come back to it later um but beautiful stuff um so the way i look at these two books just real quick uh the great game of business is the framework of how to do what jack stack figure it out on his own. It's the it's the guidebook to operate a business like this. And uh, four of the big things I took away real quick uh, from that book that come up a lot on the show, why we need to teach people how to make money, which you kind of just explained, uh, the power of open book management, uh, a company of owners, and I think those three kind of tie together. So um, you already kind of explained why we need to teach people how to make money. So how does open book management tie into that? And how is that so impactful? Well, open book management is basically the the system um, that a company can use to uh, teach people how to make money. The problem is that th- there's a little problem with the name t- open book management okay. because a lot of people hear it and think, oh, it's just about making our numbers available to people. The fact is most people could care less about the numbers. You make the numbers available. You know, people who want to become accountants become accountants. Everybody else would just as soon, you know, so you start talking about the numbers and their eyes glaze over. Mm-hmm. So the real genius of the great game of business was to create a game around it mm. because who doesn't like a game and who doesn't like to win? Mm-hmm. And, and that insight into human nature was Jack's insight. And, uh, yeah. and, 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 and he was able to, he, I won't, it wasn't just him. He did have, 
a lot of people who were helping him, but he was the champion of it and he was the visionary. And, and, um, it was something that they were able to, you know, and are still able to, um, really use throughout the, throughout the company. I mean, it's been going now for, um, more than 30 years and you have people who are working there who've actually grown up. They don't know any other way of running a business. Um, and that's probably the next generation of leaders for SRC. Okay. So just to kind of clarify, uh, obviously open book management, there's a part of that that just goes into understanding the numbers and knowing how it all works. That's, you know, and plus right. in seeing what's, you know, there's a level of transparency there that's really important too. But beyond that, the, the real trick to open book management is gamifying it and creating those standards to meet those goals. So everybody feels like there's accomplishment in that, you know, that, that we we're competitive. We, we like that side of, of just, I don't know, finish my thoughts. You know where I'm going with this? Yeah, I do. Uh, Jack refers to it as tricking people into, uh, this is the way he tricks people into, uh, learning about business and understanding business. Uh, you know, they, 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 while they're playing the game, you know, it's not like people are incapable of that. You know, you, you know, all, all these people are, you know, you have very active, uh, betting pools going on all the time about baseball or basketball or football. Well, if somebody can figure out what an earned run average is, then someone can also figure out what a current ratio is in a, in, in a business. And, um, I mean, actually a current ratio is a lot simpler to understand than an earned run average. So, but so why do people understand earned run averages, but they don't understand current ratios? Well, it's like they're into the game of baseball. <laughs> and in order to understand baseball, you know, an earn run average is an important thing to understand. If you get into the game of business, a current ratio is an important thing to understand. And, and that's, that's what his, the real genius, Jack, and that's Jack's real genius, is to have that insight and to figure out a way to tap into that. Beautiful. Um, so there's a whole chapter dedicated to uh, a company of owners. Really dive into what that means, having a company of owners. Well, Jack also had this view, and it was one of the things that he and the, the people who did the uh, original leverage buyout of uh, Springfield Reman- Reman- the the it started out as a factory in Springfield, Missouri, that was owned by a very large company called um, International Harvester. And International Harvester was at one point something like the 11th largest company in the world, uh, with its roots going back to Cyrus McCormick and the Reaper. Uh, but it had some horrible mismanagement and, the, and as well as some bad luck. And the result was that it was in, uh, it was having to uh, was in terrible trouble in the early 1980s, and they began sort of selling off assets right and left. And Jack, you know, that was a time of extremely high unemployment. And Jack was young at that point; he was in his early 30s, and so were most of his colleagues uh, who were managers there at at the plant. And um, basically, they were worried about the possibility that they that either the plant would be shut down or that it would be bought by someone who would shut it down. And they, so they decided to actually put in a bid 
for the plant. Uh, and uh, much to their surprise, their bid was accepted. Uh, the, the next question was, well, how do we get the money to pay for it? Because we're talking about, we're talking about a $7 million bid. I mean, these were sort of, you know, working stiffs pretty much um, without a lot of money. So they were able to scrounge up about $100,000 among themselves. And then they, had the, they, they went out looking for money from various other people and, and really had no luck until one day they were reading the Wall Street Journal and they saw that there was a branch of the Bank of America that was in trouble because they had made so many bad loans. And they said, well, you know, we've got the worst loan in the world. These are the people for us. So, <laughs> so they, went, they went to them and lo and behold, that unit did give them a, um, a loan for 8.9, turned out to be at its maximum, $8.9 million. Wow. So they start off with $100,000 in equity and $8.9 million in debt. When, when, in, in, it, you know, that's, if you figure it, it's called an 89 to 1 debt to equity ratio. And uh, in business, if you have an 89 to 1, banks get nervous usually when, uh, a company has like a two to one um, debt to equity ratio, and an eighty-one to eighty-nine to one uh, debt to equity ratio is is incredible, uh, and you're not really alive. You're sort of on life support, you know, and barely breathing. And uh, basically, Jack and his colleagues, Jack said, "Well, uh, somehow we've got to get." There are two things we can't do. We can't destroy ourselves from within by fighting over the cash because we've got precious little cash to deal with. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, we can't run out of cash because if we, if we miss a payment to the bank, they'll come right in and seize all the assets and we'll be out in the street. And so they decided that they would go out and they went out to the shop floor and said, you know, look, um, I mean, they had about 119 employees on the shop floor doing remanufacturing of engines and engine components. And they said, look, forget all you've heard about business. You don't need an MBA to understand it. What you need is uh, uh, there are three conditions to understand. It, you know, uh, business is not an art. It's not a science. It's a game. Mm. And like any game, in order to understand it, you have to get it. And, and there are three conditions that exist for any game in terms of getting it. And the first one is that you need to know what the rules are. The second one is that you need to get enough information so that you can follow the action and keep score. And number three, you have to care about whether or not you win or lose. You need to have a stake in the outcome. So that's, that's the way they set up the company. Mm. And, and part of that, it was not just uh, a bonus program, although that was a key part of it, but ultimately the success has to do with the value of the equity and the wealth. And so with that in mind, they made a commitment to share all the equity 
with the employees and they um, set up an employee stock ownership plan which uh, in which every employee was included and so they had they had all these people uh, who were um, you know they were o- owners now in the beginning it, that didn't seem like very much since the, since the stock was worth so little but I will tell you 30 years later there were people who had been secretaries who were leaving with a million dollars. <laughs> wow. That's uh, incredible. Yeah. And, uh, it, it was incredible and it, it has been an incredible success story. So on a psychological level, what does having equity do? How does that make people show up different versus just being an employee? Well, equity itself won't do that. You, it's, it's, you have to have, uh, some sort of a system whereby people understand what not only they have to understand what equity is and what they have to do and what other people are counting on them to do in order to increase the value of that equity. Um, You know, that's it's when, when you think about it, what is a business? A business is a bunch of people getting together to achieve some goal. Um, and everybody is, every, every, everybody in a business is important to achieving that goal. Um, and, uh, it's not only that they're important to achieving it, everybody else is counting on them to, uh, do what is necessary in order to achieve the goal. And if you set up a business so that everybody understands that, that basically we're all in this together and um, our goal here is to um, have a successful business that, you know, is providing great services or, or um, great products to our customers. And it's a really good place to work. And um, if we get this all right, we're going to, uh, we're going to, and, and, we, and we're able to make it, we're able to make this all work. Well, we'll share in the rewards together because there are potentially very substantial rewards in any business. And there were very substantial rewards in the case of SRC Holdings. And, um, you know, the commitment was made early on that everybody would have a piece of the action. Oh man, uh, I, I love it. Uh, and one other thing uh, that I want to just touch on in this book before we move on to the next book that I you know just blew me away, Small Giants was uh, one of the last chapters was on the highest level of thinking. Just quickly explain to us what you mean by the highest level of thinking. Well, there are different ways to look at that. Um, I, I guess I would say that what we were referring to in the great game of business was that the the idea is that we that you don't um as jack would say you don't just hire somebody in order to uh turn a wrench or 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 you know use a blowtorch or something like that i mean you can't do that but that's a tremendous waste mm-hmm. because because you're also hiring people with brains and if you appeal to them to use those brains to um achieve these much greater goals, you'll have a more successful business. And that's the highest level of thinking mm-hmm. is, is appealing to people so that they 
understand and, and you're asking them wherever they are in the organization, even if they're the janitors or the, uh, or the receptionists to use, to understand that they have a, an important role to play and what that, what that role is and that they are capable of having an impact that goes w- way beyond them that affects the community that affects their coworkers uh, that affects their customers and that affects the whole community that they live in and uh, Springfield remanufacturing has been an absolutely vital part of the growth of Springfield in recent years. Man, um, you know, just why that last chapter resonated with me so much is the the it's the restaurateurs who show up knowing that they'll only be as successful or as good as the people they surround themselves with, and then provide an outlet for these people to to do what they're good at, to, to leverage their special greatness that they have. Like everybody all has their special greatness. And if you let them know that they're allowed to show up to their job and go beyond just doing their job and that they have a voice and that they can give their input and that if you have an idea, share your idea, you're going to start to, if you just listen to what your people have to say, you'll start to realize that you're surrounded with all these incredible people that have special skills that can contribute something special. And you've got to let that out. You've got to let that, these people get this opportunity to share their special it with the world. Um, right. If you don't do that, you're, you're holding your business back and you're missing out on incredible opportunities. And that was another huge lesson I've had from just recording these interviews. Any reflection on that? Well, I totally agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, so we're at about a half hour now, um, and I really want to leave some time for uh, Small Giants, which, I mean, this this book just rocked my world. And the way I think about these two books, like I said, like with The Great Game of Business, you're getting the framework and how to implement these lessons that Jack Stack uh you know, shared with the world. Uh, but what you're doing with small giants is you're making an example of all these incredible people and these people who choose to be great instead of big. So, uh, let me ask you, uh, what do you mean by great? What does greatness mean to you? Well, everybody can define greatness themselves. And basically, um, what, what the book does and what the people in the book do is they challenge all business people, other business people, to ask themselves the question, what does it mean to be great? Now, different people will have different answers to that question, which is fine. But what you should never do is confuse greatness with bigness Mm. because they're two totally different concepts. Being great, um, some people may think and may believe that uh, being big is part of being great, and, you know, that's fine if that's, if that's what they believe, but, um, it's a different, it's a different concept. Uh, the people in small giants have a different conception of greatness, uh, which resonates with me and with a lot of other people. Namely, they believe that greatness has to do with basically the impact that they have on all the people around them, whether it's their employees of the company or the customers or the suppliers or the community in which they live, that uh, a business has this ability, this sort of a higher purpose of uh, really making people's lives better. And that 
if 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 that is if if you buy into that, um, you know, and some people might not, but um, you know, if if you buy into that and and you can get people inspired around the idea of actually having a making a significant difference in the world, you're going to have a great company by definition, and uh, you're going to have a lot of enthusiasm for that company too. So let me ask you, um, in your opinion, why do you think it's, I, I'm assuming you're leaning in one direction that you prefer or you believe it's, it's better to be great than it is to be big. So why, why do you lean in that direction of uh, greatness over bigness? Well, I don't necessarily, uh, uh, I have nothing against big businesses. Okay. Um, I think there, there are big businesses that I would, I would, I would consider great. Um, um, the, the thing is this, is that when you, when you focus on people as I did in small giants and companies that have made a conscious decision that, uh, as much as they want to grow, they are not going to sacrifice uh, certain values that they have in order to grow. In other words, if they're given a choice between, um, uh, y- y- you know, I guess I put it, I put it another way, which is that you know, uh, there are some people out there uh, who believe that basically business is bad. There was a time when I believed that myself and that basically what businesses do is that they exploit their employees and they take advantage of their customers. And, and what I've learned in the entire time that I've been really, that I've been writing about entrepreneurs is that, well, that that's the wrong way. The business is a tool and, and it can be a tool for good or it can be a, a tool for bad. Um, and, uh, you know, that, um, if you, if you want to have a positive impact in the world, there's no better vehicle for doing that than business. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and, and so as far as the question of size goes, um, it's true. You know, you look at somebody like, you look at Whole Foods Market, for example. Well, there was a time when Whole Foods was a small giant. It was one store in Austin, Texas. Um, and John Mackey, who was the founder, decided that he wanted to have a bigger impact. So he uh, took the company public and raised capital. And then he went around and began buying up other uh, stores, whole food markets around the country and integrating them into whole food markets. And, uh, I think he's created a really exceptional company, a really good company, Mm -hmm. but there are trade-offs, you know, when you, once you get above a certain size, um, you lose some things. You, you, you do have an opportunity to have an a certain impact and whole foods is certainly a company that has had a great impact on a lot of different 
ways that we think and think about food and on a lot of different people, but, he, but they've also lost something along the way. And that is the kind of intimacy that you get when you're a smaller company and, uh, um, uh, there are, I mean, I've talked to people who were at Whole Foods in the early days, and they talk about how different it, it, it how it changed as it, as it grew larger. Um, there was such a fanatical attention to quality in the early days that, and, and, and John Mackey was there himself enforcing that. Um, and you know, you lose something, uh, like that when you, when you get above a certain size and that's all right, as long as you're aware that you're making that sacrifice Mm. that, that, um, that, that, that you're going to, you're going to gain certain things and you're going to lose certain things. And yeah, uh, I hear you saying in those certain things that you call the intimacy, you also call that mojo or soul are different words you use to explain what this thing is. And you know, this is this is just me speaking right now. Um, and I, I feel like we as humans, uh, we need these certain things we need. Imit- imit- or sorry, intimacy. We need uh, mojo. We need soul in our lives. We need to be able to connect on a certain level and express ourselves on a certain level and have that freedom to uh I mean, express ourselves. And when we get so big, it's you, you really have to get rigid in certain places and you don't have that same flexibility and a freedom to express yourself and to contribute in ways you might want to contribute. And that's kind of where I don't like big business personally. It's just because I feel like we're not, we as human beings, we're not meant to operate like that. Uh, we were never meant to. I think once you get so big, you start taking away what makes us human. Uh, that's just how I feel personally. Uh, I mean, do you want to share, do you want to reflect on what I just said or? Well, uh, I would talk about what Danny, what Danny Meyer, um, what I've learned from Danny Meyer. Can I just pause real quick? Because sure. I just want to, two people, uh, two companies that Bo profiles in this uh, book, Small Giants, one, uh, Union Square Hospitality, Danny Meyers, and two, Zingerman's. And I kind of wanted to set that up because we're, you went there before I did. So yeah, what did we learn from Danny Meyer? What were you going to say? Well, w- when I... When he started out, um, he would, he got was very worried uh, about losing something special, that mojo, the soul, whatever it was, mm-hmm. uh, by growing. And um, you know, he had one one restaurant to begin with, Union Square Hospitality, Union Square uh, Cafe. What was it? Union, Union, yeah, Union Square. Square Cafe, I believe. Yeah, Union Square Cafe, and then he started another restaurant, Gramercy Tavern, and he began starting restaurants, all of them in the same basic area of New York, and he came up with a rule that he didn't want to, um, he didn't want to start any restaurant that he couldn't walk to uh, in five minutes from his home, and there was a reason for that, is that he felt that as a restaurateur, he had to be able to show up at lunch at, at all the restaurants. He had to have a, actually a physical presence there. Now, that changed as time went along because there were, there were certain opportunities that came along um, that he uh, got excited about and thought 
could be really great. And uh, one of them actually was he set up a little um, burger, sh- burger shack uh, in in a park near near you in, in in Madison Park, which is not in Union Square but nearby. And uh, um, it began it became very very popular because he brought because they brought the same standards of excellence mm. to it that they did to all their other restaurants. I mean, Union Square Hospitality and Gramercy Tavern have been the w- number one and two most popular restaurants in the entire city of New York time for and, years, and again, years, yeah. and years and years and years and years. But he was, still, he was still a little bit nervous about growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's one reason why he uh, uh, went as as Shake Shack began to grow and grow. He he set it up in a way that he could spin it off as a as a public company, which is what he eventually did. Mm-hmm. Um, but he could keep Union Square Hospitality Group, you know, relatively small. Mm. But over over time, he discovered that there was a problem with that. Um, because what was happening was, and and I write about this in the 10th anniversary edition of Small Giants, which came out last fall, and which I would I would recommend that uh, people take a look at because it's got new stuff. It's got a whole new chapter on the finances of Small Giants, and it's got a chapter on an update of what's happened to all the companies. And when I did that, um, I talked to Danny and Danny told me about some major changes that had happened at Union Square Hospitality Group, which came about because he discovered that, in fact, he began doing, uh, he he worked with the Great Place to Work Institute, you know, which does the the thing for, for Fortune of the hundred best companies to work for in America. And uh, he had them come in and uh, do their tests and everything uh, for Union Square Hospitality Group. And he was disappointed in the results, but he decided to wait and try it again a a year or two later and see see if it was things were improved. And he did. And when they redid it, the same problems were showing up. And at that point, he realized he had to find out what was going on here. And oddly enough, what he found was that he had a lot of people, senior people in the company who'd been with him a very long time and had gotten bored Mm. and essentially weren't practicing the kind of company, the, the kind of things he wrote about in his book um, uh, setting the table. Yeah, setting the table. He said that he that there were there were people who would um, come to work in Union Square Hospitality, one of the restaurants, thinking that it was going to be run the way uh, it, it, he had described in setting the table, and uh, it turned out not to be hmm. because they had leadership that really was not doing what needed to be done 
eventually he wound up laying off a large number of people, many of whom had been with him a long time. But and you know he he did it in 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 the right way, mm-hmm. uh, but it changed his whole way of looking at growth, and he began to realize he came to the opinion that his old idea that growth was a threat to the soul of the business was wrong, and he began to believe that in fact growth was necessary. And when I probed him on that, he he, he said, well thing about growth is that growth brings about change mm. and change gives you an opportunity to in fact improve your culture and uh, I don't know if that's true of everybody but it was definitely what Danny had come to believe and it was I found it very very interesting that is extremely interesting and I was not aware of that so thank you for bringing that new information to light uh, I I Listening to you talk, I couldn't help but think of his words when he was talking about, uh, you know, he was comparing a business to a baseball glove. And he says, you know, some people, they start and they try to go big too soon and they haven't taken the time to break in their business like you would a baseball glove. And if anybody who's ever worn a baseball glove knows if you put that thing on. Uh, and like a week later, you tried to you know play in the All Star game. That thing is going to be hurting your hand by the fourth inning. So uh, sure. his, his analogy basically is. You've got to take time to build soul, to build relationships, to build people, and you've got to break in your business. You've got to get that foundation underneath you before you can grow so you can get these people that you've developed who have the same culture that you have, who have the same way of doing business that you've you know, imparted onto them, and then you give them the growth. And one thing that I think separates Danny Myers um, from other business owners is that um, when you grow... Um, you get diluted. I think that's kind of like part of the thing that you're you're losing. You know, you lose that mojo, you lose that soul because you're you're spreading yourself thinner. And behind every great restaurant's a great person. You can only spread that person's influence so far before it starts to get diluted. But Danny Meyer, uh, he has such an influence in the industry that his presence is so huge that he can afford to be diluted because he's duplicated himself with his beliefs and he's set the standard. They call his book the Bible of the hospitality industry. So when you have that kind of presence, you can afford to dilute yourself. And I get where, what he's saying as far as he learned that, you know, if when people reach a certain level, they, they, they can't grow anymore. And that growth is essential. I totally get that. And I believe in it. And, um, I think that's kind of where that whole, having a, a company of owners, when you provide opportunity and you grow laterally, and I think that's a great transition into Zingerman's cause that's kind of what they do. They grow laterally and they, they provide that group opportunity for growth, but with unique concepts. Do you want to share anything that I shared or reflect no, on anything no, I shared? No, you, you're absolutely right about that. That Zingerman's is a contrast and that, Zingerman's does grow laterally in the sense that rather than uh, start uh, other Zingerman's delicatessens all over the country, which they could have done if they wanted to, they, 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 but they said, you know, we set out to, to start something that was going to be great and unique. And mm-hmm. when you start duplicating something, it's no longer unique by definition. A lot of times it isn't even very good, let alone great. Um, and... So instead, they decided that they would create other businesses in the Ann Arbor area that would all be food related and would each of which would be great and unique in its own way. Just say they came up with, you know, they have a bakery, they have a candy company and a coffee company. They have a uh, um, uh, 
you know, they have a catering company, they have a mail order company, uh, and a training company. And so many got things a, going on. Yeah. Yeah. They got so <laughs> many things going on and, um, and they're very successful. Uh, but there's still, you know, it was started, the company was started by two people, uh, Ari Weinzweig and Paul Saginaw. And it is a very unique relationship that they have. I just wrote about it actually in Forbes in an article because um, an issue had come up about growth. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm laying this out because it's important to understand that there are different views and it's not like one is right or the other is, and, and the other is wrong. It's that there are different ways to look at this and everybody sort of has to think about it for themselves because again, come back to what it, what is it that's a great company and what do you believe is a great company? In, in this case, the, an opportunity had arisen to start a Zingerman's at Detroit airport, um, which was, uh, it had come up before and they decided to do it, but then the deal had fallen through and now it was coming up again. And, um, the, uh, Paul Saginaw, uh, was very anxious to take advantage of this opportunity, uh, because he saw it as a, as a chance to have something that was going to be really great at the airport. And that was going to be good for the other companies in the Zingerman's community of businesses who would be able to sell their stuff wholesale, um, to sell their stuff uh, and through this outlet at the airport. And uh, Ari Weinzweig was dead set against it. He he just did not want to have anything to do with, uh, with, with a new business that was not going to be in the Ann Arbor area. I mean, it's not like it's very far away from Ann Arbor, but um, it's still, it was outside the area where he wanted to be. And it's, and it's interesting to realize that that tension between the two of them uh, is what has created Zingerman's. That had, had it just been either one of them, mm. Zingerman's would be very different today, but it's, it's the tension between the two of them and the, you know, Paul's uh, very much interested in growing and expanding the footprint. And Ari is very much interested in um, creating a company with, you know, that has that, the things that you can only get in small companies. Mm -hmm. And he, and um, so it's an ongoing debate. Now, in the end, they decided not to do it. Um, they, de they decided to do some other things instead because they couldn't get enough. Uh, th they were they were too divided and nobody wanted to um, do anything that would, um, I mean, Paul Saginaw basically, he, he sort of lost the argument and he said, well, my friendship with Ari is too important and uh, my... <laughs> For, for for me to make a big issue out of this. So I'm just, I'm just going to let it drop. 
I hear you. I think this is a great time to take a break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. After studying over 300 successful restaurant professionals, I've discovered that to be successful in the restaurant industry, you need skills that go far beyond knowing how to cook. All of our guest mentors are damn near experts on business operations, systems, and culture. That is not a coincidence. That is what it takes to be successful. This is exactly why I tell everyone I know who wants to open a restaurant or is in the restaurant business to get a membership to restaurantowner.com. For only $29 a month, you have access to over 300 templates, including business plans, checklists, forms, manuals, and procedures. In addition, you have countless resources at your fingertips to join a community that has helped over 40,000 restaurant owners make better lives for themselves. Head over to restaurantowner.com slash unstoppable and because you are restaurants unstoppable listeners you will get the first 10 days for only one dollar again that's restaurantsowner.com slash unstoppable whether you're just getting started in the restaurant business or if you're a seasoned veteran there's always something new to learn That never ends. (laughs) But what hasn't changed is the time you get to learn. Tipsy has taken everything you need to know and put it in one easy to access location. With Tipsy, you can learn what you want, when you want, by accessing an incredible library of video courses on topics like food and beverage, service, marketing, and business operations. It's basically a one-stop shop for everything you need to run a successful restaurant. You can also use Tipsy as a staff training tool. Through the management platform, you can select the courses that matter to you and schedule them out to your employees in a few simple clicks. Individual memberships are only $9 a month, and as a restaurant's unstoppable listener, you receive an extra 50% off your first month. So what are you waiting for? For $4.50, you can have access to this incredible resource right now. Just find the tipsy banner in the show notes. Oh, I don't even know which direction to turn and there's so much running through my head right now listening to you talk, Bo. Um, I think, you know, I, I th- that's a really cool angle to see how they kind of like are the yin and the yang. I mean, I feel like Ari kind of embodies that sense of the be great instead of big. In your the book, uh, you say, you know, you're, you're talking about these values, these certain things that we don't want to give up, the things we would have to sacrifice in order to be big in, can you just expand a little bit on that? Some of the things that you believe would have to be sacrificed in order to give up or to grow big. Well, you, 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 let's just take Zingerman's as an example and the choice that they faced, which this was actually the beginning of small giants. Cause I'd written, I'd written an article about this and, um, publisher came to me afterwards and said he liked the article. He wondered if there were other companies uh, that faced a similar decision. And I, I didn't know, but I thought it was worthwhile to go out and see. But, but basically, back in 1992, Zingerman's was 10 years old. And they had set out to create a great and unique delicatessen, and they had succeeded They had been, you know, Zingerman's was famous. Anybody who talked about the great delicatessens of the world um, mentioned Zingerman's as one of them. And uh, they were actually getting a lot of people coming to them 
saying they wanted to start Zingerman's in other sort of college towns around the country. Okay. And, and they could have done that. Uh, but what they would have lost was um, the, the kind of intimacy with the community at their community, which was Ann Arbor, which they valued a, a, a great deal, that relationship to Ann Arbor, mm-hmm. and, and the sort of the cohesion of having uh, everybody in more or less the same place um, so that it not necessarily in the same business, but in the same geographical area so that um, th- there would really be sort of an esprit de corps among the Zingerman's employees. Um, and, uh, and they also, there was also, I mean, Ari, I think in particular, had a real concern about equality. And, you know, it's, uh, Fritz Maytag, who I write about is the, the, the guy behind Anchor Brewing. Um, he has the same feeling that you grow too much and you really just lose control of quality. You know that that you can start a, a big argument over that uh, <laughs> because there are other people who who totally disagree with that and but uh some people have that view, and it's not totally crazy um and Ari certainly felt that way, and he thought that the quality of their products um would 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 go down, and so he um, so he and Paul struggled with this to see if they could come up with some other way to grow. Now, again, imagine if Zingerman's had made another choice, if it had decided to franchise, which was a very real real possibility. Would a franchise, would, would Zingerman's, a whole bunch of Zingerman's franchises around the country be the same thing? Probably not. I mean, I was on the board actually of the U.S. branch of the of the Body Shop, which had franchises around the country, and you know, it was different. It was uh, it's not that it was bad. It was that there's there again there are trade offs that mm-hmm. you make, mm-hmm. and, and uh, that's 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 a choice that uh, people have to make mm-hmm. is whether or not they want. They want to accept those trade-offs. Ari, in particular, was very was adamant that he didn't want to accept those trade-offs. That he wanted, you know, great to be associated with great and unique businesses that had the power to really sort of transform a whole community, which indeed Zingerman's has done in the Ann Arbor area. I mean, it's had a huge impact on Ann Arbor. I mean, to the point where when the president goes to Ann Arbor, he goes out of his way to get his uh, um, Reuben sandwich at uh, at Zingerman's. And uh, um, so I, I, I think that, again, it's a, it's a, it's a question that people have to ask themselves about what I would say it's particularly true of people in the re- if you have a, a very successful restaurant business, um, it becomes a very uh, 
key question as to how you want to grow and if you want to grow. Um, because, you know, the standard way to grow is you can have company-owned stores or you can go <coughs> and franchise, but what are you going to lose if you do? Mm. You know, and, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. You go ahead. No, I was just going to say... Um, you know, listening to you, I'm writing down a few things as you're talking. The things that you you could lose is just the intimacy, basically not being as close, not having that same impact that you would, uh, the, the quality, the soul, the mojo. And, uh-huh. I, you know, I find it interesting that out of the 14 uh, companies you profiled, I believe, correct? Yes, correct. Two of them were restaurants. And I feel like out of all the industries in the world they're all and all the different types of companies there are, you only selected 14 and two of them were restaurants. I think goes to show you that in this particular industry where so much of what makes us successful is that emotional intelligence, that human connectivity, that, that impact in the community. Like these are the things that, I mean, who we source our, our products from our, our, you know, our purveyors, we, we have to just serving our guests to, you know, mentoring young people for so many of these young people. It's their first job ever. We have such a footprint in these communities that, in this particular case, for us, for restaurant owners, there's more weight put on that intimacy. Is that fair to say, or is that worth considering? It's absolutely fair to say. In fact, I'll tell you something. Um, I had to put a limit on the number of restaurants <laughs> that I was going to include. I could have written the whole book about uh, restaurants or food-related businesses. I mean, there are, you know, it, I could frankly have also written a whole book about breweries that yeah. uh, that 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 were uh, small giants, mm-hmm. um, and uh, there's certain industries that really do lend themselves mm. to this whole way of uh, growing a business, and uh, the restaurant business is one of them for sure, no question about it. Yeah, and I mean. It's it's just one kind of like a, I guess a final thought just to respect your time because we are over an hour now. Um, you use a word a bunch of times today that just sings to me that resonates with me so much and that's impact. And I feel like the more we focus on going inward and focusing on the details and focusing on the relationships and having more fewer solid relationships and having more more or uh, let me say that again. It's more important to have fewer relationships that are more impactful and more meaningful than it is to have a bunch of relationships that are just shallow, meaningless relationships, in my opinion, in this industry. And um, when you focus on going deep, when you focus on making that impact, you will grow over time. If you're patient right. and you in Zingerman's is a great example. They started with a delicatessen and they focus on going in, not out, being amazing, focusing on the people, focusing on making a change, a difference and mentoring and quality, all these things. And that reputation has ha- gotten them to the point. I can't remember the last time I checked. I think they're grossing like 24 million a year and all served from a delicatessen. You can get there, but you don't have to do it the easy way. You don't have to do it the shallow soulless way. I mean, I'm definitely leaning towards one direction, but I'm, that's just me. That's, that's, that's how I am. Uh, well, that, that's perfectly fine, Eric, <laughs> because I mean, I actually, there's a whole community called the small giants community, which, uh, I, I it, it was started by other people, but with my full support 
I'm and uh, <laughs> it's you can find them at smallgiants.org, mm. O-R-G, and there's a conference every year. There's one actually coming up in Detroit in May, um, and there are other activities as well. Um, but it, it does give you an opportunity to interact with people who have a similar um, way of looking at the, the, this thing. Awesome. Um, this has been great. Uh, any final thoughts before I have you call somebody out and uh, leave some contact or other information to call to action? Well, just to bring the two of them together, I did not emphasize open book management and small giants, but you're right about the link between the two. Beautiful. Um, and in fact, I, I do in the, in the uh, 10th anniversary edition, I make that a lot more explicit. Okay. Um, uh, one of the things, Zingerman's, for example, is a company that has really taken the, the great game of business and applied it to its own business. It calls it something different. It calls it open book finance. Um, and uh, it, t- it actually teaches it to other people as well. But it's been very, extremely effective for for Zingerman's. Um, awesome. And uh, I, I do think that the companies that ultimately do the best are going to be the ones that, that practice. I would say that in the entire time I've been writing about entrepreneurs, open book management is the most powerful management tool I have ever seen. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, has the greatest potential you know, to really supercharge and make unstoppable <laughs> a <Awesome>. business. <laughs> I love it. So uh, this is episode uh, 309. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 309. I'll link back to the great game of business, to small giants, uh, to setting the table, which was mentioned a few times. Ari Weinswag also has a series of books, an anarchist approach to running a business, being a leader. There's a few of them out there. I'll link to those as well. Um, and to that conference that you mentioned, the small giants community, I'll link to that as well. And we wrap up every episode by calling somebody out. So who is one independent restaurant operator, uh, somebody you admire in this industry and think would be a great guest mentor like you were for us today? Well, most of the ones I really admire I've written about. Um, <laughs> I've had Ari uh, on the show. Okay. Well, I certainly admire Danny Meyer. Now, Danny has a, has a different approach from Zygermus. It's similar, but it, but it's a little bit different. Um, and... Uh, uh, Danny is certainly someone who I have the greatest admiration for. Um, I, I'm interested in people who have interesting ways of thinking. And Danny is somebody who has a very interesting way of thinking. Um, so, and, and I, I, I guess I would be derelict if I didn't mention that uh, my friend and sometime co-author Norm Brodsky is also in the restaurant business these days. Uh, he's working with some other entrepreneurs to create a chain of uh, sort of um, Asian, uh, what do you call them, like Chipotle. Uh, fast casual? Fast casual restaurants okay. cool. in New York awesome. called, Kobe, called Kobayaki. Norm Brodsky and Danny Meyer. I've, I've been, I've barked up Danny Meyer's tree a bunch of times. I think it's coming up to that annual re, you know, time where I send another email. So I'll be coming after you and Norm Brodsky is on my radar. Now look out, I'm coming after you, Norm. And, uh, man, just before I say, I say goodbye, I just want to say thank you. Uh, I feel like, uh, you know, our, our, 
there's a lot of hope for America. I feel like mostly because of our ability to get access to this information. And today, uh, you know, there's just so much access to people like yourself sharing this knowledge and making it possible for the general public to have. I mean, this information is, is so readily accessible to anybody who wants to lo- learn. And I feel like that middle class, uh, because of this fragmentation of communication and, and really is leveling the playing field, um, there's tons of hope for you know, the, the future of this country. And it's because of people like you doing this work, creating this content and sharing with all of us so we can be just a little bit more unstoppable. So thank you for all the work you've done over the years. Well, you're, you're certainly an inspiration to people (laughs) in the restaurant business. So I I would include you in that. Uh, I'm not going to put myself next to you, but thank you. I'll take the compliment. Um, (laughs) uh, is there any way we can connect if if we want or any way to learn more about you or do you want to let us know about your, Well, well, I do, I do, I do have a website. Um, called uh, it's BoBurlingham.com, and you can through that website you can find out about me uh, and, and but more important find out about the books that I've written, including my latest one, which is Finish Big, which believe me actually is 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 a sort of a sequel to Small Giants, yes. although the way it's a sequel is. Uh, is a little complicated. We can talk about that some other time. Eric. I would love to. I was hoping you would say that because uh, that book and the, the the new edition, the tenth is it the tenth edition of your tenth, uh, small tenth channel? anniversary. Yeah. Next thing I do after getting off this call is I'm going to Amazon and getting those books. Um, so anyway, uh, this has been incredible. I'm abusing your time now, but uh, this was just a blast. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us as a guest mentor. There is no questioning, Bo. You are unstoppable. thank you eric you are obviously too (laughs) thank you cheers bye-bye oh my god that was like a fanboy moment for me i don't know if you guys could tell but i was almost nervous talking to bo burlingham uh just such a huge fan of his books and uh, the content he's put into this world and um you know i don't (laughs) i don't know if i was making any sense when i was talking to him but uh, just so passionate for that message. Uh, and I'm so happy that he agreed with the idea that, you know, we are in the industry of people. Um, you might think it's in, you know, the industry of food, but we as humans are so tied to food on a more intimate level. I mean, it is because of our ability to cook and our connection to food and our ability just to ma- manipulate uh, energy that we have a- we've made it to this point. Um, food isn't, in my opinion, it shouldn't be a commodity. You know, it's, it's, it's more than that. We, we owe more respect to, to food into this industry than just making it about the money. At the end of the day, it's about people, um, coming together to leverage the the special skills of people, the, the baker, the butcher, uh, to, to be able to create something to sustain a community. I mean, that's something special. That's something intimate. And, uh, it, it, it's it's part of who we are and uh this this you know the intimacy of this industry is just such something so special um the connections to the, the product the, to the people that create the product to the communities to mentoring young people we get the, the the ability to touch so many young lives um why not make it something great why not do something great why not focus on being great focus on going inward to the details to the relationships uh, that's what I got from this book and the people that were profiled in his book. Um, 
small giants. And also, uh, you know, like I mentioned during the interview, uh, the, the great game of business gives you all the tools that these people that he profiles, all 14 companies that he profiles in small giants. These two books, guys, must be a part of your library. Uh, if you if you want them, be successful like my guest mentor. So many of them have read these books and are implementing these styles of management, business, leadership in their restaurants. Uh, so again, head over to the show notes. Uh, this is Restaurant Unstoppable slash 309. I'll have the link to do a great game of business, to Small Giants, to Danny Myers setting the table, to all of Ari Weinswag's books. Uh, these are incredible people to learn from. You owe it to yourself. Uh, man, I'm jacked up right now. Uh, <laughs> so uh, this is what I was talking about, by the way, when I said I wanted to go full-time to create more content that is more impactful, that goes deeper that uh, connects with people like Bo Burlingham and these are my these are the A-listers guys uh, so if you want to uh, get more out of these interviews um, make sure you sign up for Restaurant Unstoppable's email list because what I'm going to start doing is um, sharing with you the books I'm starting why is that important because I'm going to then go to these people hopefully get them on the show and I feel like you're going to get much more value from these interviews if you are reading the books that I'm reading and um, just being familiar with this work that's out there. I feel like you're going to get way more out of these interviews if you uh, really start pushing yourself to lead, read at least one book a month. So um, do sign up for that email list. Connect with me, Eric, at restaurantunstoppable.com. I love when you guys connect with me. Um, the, the advice you give me as far as your, your challenges, uh, ways I can make the website better. I listen to all that and it's going to make this resource better. So do know that you can tell me if you think there's something I could be doing better, uh, a topic we're not discussing that needs to be brought up. I'm here. I want to dive into the stuff. So let me know. Find me on Facebook at slash restaurant unstoppable. I'm on Snapchat. Now I'm trying to be better about Snapchat. Eric Cacciatore on Snapchat and also Instagram, Eric Cacciatore and set up those one-on-one chats, guys. I love those one-on-one chats. I mean, it's like we said, it's all about impact, right? And with those calls, that's where I can make the most impact and get to know my listeners and hear their problems. So do set up those one-on-one calls. And all right, that's it for today. If you stuck around this long, thank you guys so much. I love you all. Until next time, peace out.